0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: The Bosma family is back in the news again today. They have filed a lawsuit against, uh, of course, the killers of Tim Bosma. And uh, I'll read this right off the web page. Uh, Tim Bosma's family has launched a civil suit against his killers. The $14 million lawsuit was filed back in May uh, in 20, uh, in 2015, more than a year before Della Millard and Mark Smith were found guilty of first degree murder in his death. Uh, the statement says bosma's family uh, continues to suffer from severe emotional and mental distress as a result of the brutal and callous act uh, this is just another venue where they can get justice for tim is what the civil lawyer uh, told the hamilton spectator uh, millard filed a statement of defense last november calling for the lawsuit to be thrown out uh, millard's mum. Uh, Madeline Burns and his girlfriend Christina Nugda are also listed as defendants in the lawsuit. To talk more about all of this and what it means for the family, Lauren Hottickman is with his partner uh, Brody Thorny and Zabaris and on the line with us now. Hello Lauren. how are you doing today? How are you
2: Scott? Nice to be on.
1: Thank you very much for taking the time. We really appreciate this. So why are we just finding finding out about this now, Lauren? Why is this coming up now?
2: I don't know. Once a lawsuit is filed it is a public document so Maybe they just didn't want to announce it. There's, you know, when you file a lawsuit, you have no obligation to make a big uh, announcement and go, "Hey, we're filing our lawsuit." Uh, but once it's filed, uh, you know, you, I guess you can file something quietly, quote unquote. But it becomes uh, a public document. But the, the the real key about it all is is not that you or I or anybody else has just been uh, finding out about it. It's in the courts. It's um, it's it's not out of the ordinary that there are what we call companion lawsuits that go to criminal proceedings and one of the interesting parts of the uh of the proceed now i got to say i haven't seen the statement of claim i haven't seen the statement of defense so i'm only going by the article that i've read uh, i guess it's in the spectator mm-hmm. um and some different uh references that have been talked about in there and w- one of the things that you sue in a in a lawsuit is that you, you file a lawsuit uh, based on, on the damages that you allege that you suffered, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you've, got, you've got a lawsuit, I guess, that the family has put in, and they are allowed to bring a lawsuit under the Family Law Act for financial and emotional damage. And one of the other allegations that I can see in the article that's been made is that's, that there's an allegation of what's called we call in law fraudulent conveyance, and that's that somebody is trying to deplete their the allegation would be that, uh, that somebody is trying to deplete their assets to try and make themselves judgment proof. So I'll give you an example of where you see allegations of fraudulent conveyance. Uh, Somebody uh, somebody knows that they're going to be sued and they go, oh well, I own property, I have property in my name, I better, uh, I better do something about this right away, or else uh, if I get sued, they're going to be able to latch onto my property for potential damages. And so you start trying to deplete your assets like your property at that time. Now there's a cause of action, uh, it's called fraudulent conveyance when you try and do that, and I can see that in, in this particular case. Uh, there is going to be an allegation as well about that so um it's uh, it's there uh, i i understand their defense is filed uh one of the things that um uh and again, because it's it's Ontario and it's Canada, Scott, things don't, the wheels of justice don't mm. move very quickly. And certainly they don't move very quickly in the civil courts as well.
1: Uh, what you're making reference to is, according to the spec, the transfer of properties from Millard to his mother in the days after his arrest in May 2013. They say a fraudulent conveyance aimed at protecting the assets from the creditors as right. much as unlawful. Uh, so when, obviously, this has happened days you know days apart from from all of this other stuff going down right. uh, what's the chance of this uh, of them being successful in this and and apprehending that property that was transferred
2: well it, you, that's that's a great question and of course uh, it would be impossible to do any type of analysis now and say well they got a good chance not a good chance the the understanding is is that the trade, Let me ask you
1: this Lauren just yeah. the fact that he had transferred that money what does that say
2: that doesn't say anything, um, you know, necessarily. You know, there could be different, a lot of different reasons why somebody who, who's got arrested and now has to um, uh, face a whole legal proceeding uh, right after his arrest. Now, the one the, you can allege and say, well, you did that to protect your assets from credit, creditors. Or you could say, well, no, I had to do that for a lot of different reasons, and uh, I know that uh, there's been a lot made about uh, Mr. Millard and the money that he had or that he had access to, and that's all, of course, that's going to come out. The important thing is is that he has filed a statement of defense in this case, and again, I haven't seen the defense, I haven't seen the claim, but it's... It, You know, you put in a statement of defense, you know, the the material facts that you're going to allege in in defending this. So also we can see his assets apparently have been frozen, and now there is a court-ordered receiver in place that's been in place since November of 2015, and the only thing that can be used with respect to that money uh, are legal fees so people so lawyers have been able to get through orders of the court access for that so you know the other thing is there's no uh, there's been no statement of claim filed uh, on behalf of Mr Smith yet as far as i understand uh, but one of the things that i think everybody should should look at uh, and, and and understand, first and foremost, these types of lawsuits are not uncommon at all. Um, they, they happen all the time in compa- uh, as companion proceedings. Uh, they will sometimes take a back seat until the criminal proceedings have been dealt with, but not necessarily. And number two, um, it, it, if these are going to be defended vigorously, Uh, then it is going to take quite some time before any type of civil lawsuit will ever be adjudicated here in the province of Ontario. And if somebody's saying, well, what is he referring to a long time? It could take anywhere two, three, even four years before these cases would come before a trial court in the civil division, if indeed it even gets that far.
1: Uh, uh, Obviously, uh, these two have been charged and convicted, but there's still other trials ongoing. Does it it matter where, at what stage they're at before uh, proceeding with this, or does that have any... Well,
2: that's a great question, Scott, because a lot of times people will argue, and we used to argue it all the time, that... Uh, the civil proceedings should be put on hold until all the de- uh, d- uh criminal proceedings have been uh taken care of, but the courts over the years have said no no we 're not going to do that we're not going to uh uh, burdened an already burdened civil justice system. So a lot of times these things happen, uh, almost contemporaneously while one is going on. There's always arguments saying, well, you can't start having somebody testify in a civil proceeding because it could then prejudice his or her criminal proceeding. But these things are happening all the time. Now, I know there's some other, uh, defendants have, that have been named in these lawsuits. Uh, um, somebody who is uh charged as an accessory yeah. after the fact um she uh, uh her trial is it november that uh, her trial mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so so i guess one of the things anything doing with her you I, i'm sure her criminal counsel and whoever her civil counsel may be uh you know they're going to say listen we're going to wait here we got a we got a trial to take care of mm-hmm. uh, a criminal trial first um
1: we know that the U.S. system is different from the Canadian system, but we remember what happened with O.J. Simpson got off yeah. criminally and then civilly. So is conviction, more, uh, is, is conviction more likely in a civil scenario in Canada? Well, it,
2: it's not called a conviction, of course, in the civil proceeding. Uh, it's, it's it's cause of action, and there's a different standard of proof. Mm-hmm. In a criminal trial, uh, a Crown has to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the highest standard of proof in Canadian law. In a civil case, a plaintiff has to prove his or her case beyond, on a balance of probabilities, meaning more likely than not. So it's a lower standard. So so certainly, one, and one of the other things that happens in a civil proceeding, Scott, is proof of a conviction. So once somebody's convicted, you don't have to then go ahead and have to prove the case again. Uh, the law has, has evolved here in Ontario where the... the the criminal conviction is you can use that as proof and then you can almost leapfrog right to the damage claim mm. uh... aspect of it so so that's why it's so i think what we i think what everybody's going to have to see is that this this lawsuit and i guess it's it's a it's a substantive lawsuit uh... will sort of work its way through the courts um, as the criminal uh proceedings get dealt with. And of course the next part of the criminal proceedings, I know that Mr. Millard has another trial coming up. Uh that's happening uh or both him and Mr. Smith have another trial coming up. Uh, and and certainly the family's lawyer is gonna want to push the civil proceeding, uh not make it just sit and wait in abeyance, so let it keep it going. So we're gonna see on both tracks a lot of things, um a lot of things happening at the same time.
1: What, what are the chances that the Bosmas will see any money?
2: Well, that's a great question. And one of the things that when you, get, when you are a plaintiff's counsel in this, that you, you, you have a client that's asking you the same question and say, mm-hmm. what are our chances here? Uh, certainly, Mr. Bosma, from what we understand and what's happened, uh, there There's allegations there that there is money in the estate and there could be money there uh whether or not um uh the family is ever going to see any money from this is the question that you just asked is really. In this particular case, I guess the fourteen million dollar question. Uh, it'll be—it's um, always difficult uh, to predict, uh, but certainly if things flow and follow, and if you uh, if you happen to be counsel who's defending Mr. Bosma on the civil side and looking at it, there'll be a lot of different things that you'll be looking at uh, with respect to whether or not. Um, anybody w- will be able to pay. One of the things that happens, Scott, in a civil lawsuit is once all the defenses go in, uh, and they may be in already, and again, I don't know, uh, there's a, a, a mediation, a potential mediation along the way where you sit down with, a, with someone who is a mediator, uh, their their decision is not binding, and you work out and to see whether or not a settlement can even be reached at any point. Mm. So... Now, of course, uh, you're dealing in a criminal case here right now where both accused pointed the fingers at each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, for somebody to say at this point, yeah, okay, we'll settle the criminal case when you've taken the position, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Uh, I'm not the person that did anything here. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of different things and a lot of strategies and legal issues that arise before there would be any potential settlement. Uh, So I think everybody will have to say, uh, it's gonna. Um, my prediction will be. Here's the only thing that I can predict. It's going to be some time before we find out how the civil action even could potentially come to an end.
1: Did we ever find out if the Goldman family got money from OJ?
2: Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't know how much money he had at that time. Right. Mm, this was yeah. after his criminal proceeding. And I think that if I remember and I saw a great documentary, I don't know if you saw it mm. on the whole O. J. Simpson yeah. case. I mean they got what was it? It was like thirty two million dollars or something. Yeah. But but I can remember Mr. Goldman's father saying, you know, it wasn't about the money at all and they knew they weren't gonna get a lot of money or, or any money. They just wanted to uh, they wanted to get a finding of fact that O J had done something.
1: Yeah, they wanted the guilty conviction yeah no matter which way they got it
2: no matter which way they got it right or not a guilty conviction but a finding of guilt right. and uh, and that's exactly maybe what uh the Bosma family may hope to find here that if this proceeds to trial if um you know if Mr. Millard were going to take the position again throughout, even into the civil proceeding, that he did not do anything, well, then they'll be able to adjudicate the case in a civil proceeding. And it would be, as I said, uh, Scott, the burden of proof becomes only on a balance of probability, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Hmm. But the unfortunate part, and I know I keep coming back to it, and we keep coming back to it all the time in the Canadian judicial system. In fact, it's the only thing that I say that our friends south of the border, that their system is much superior to ours. The only thing. And that is their cases, whether it's civil or criminal, get to court in a reasonable and proper amount of time. We don't seem to be able to do that in either the civil or the criminal system where we're getting better, but we're not really where we need to be yet. And as far as a civil lawsuit, when you've got all of the criminal proceedings still pending and everything happening, it's gonna be quite some time if this case is, is, is vigorously defended right to the end before the Bosma family will ever be able to adjudicate this case.
1: Lauren Honigman has been with us, partner, Brody Thorning and Zabaris. Lauren, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much
2: appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. We'll talk soon.
1: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900-CHML. If you've got a kid that's allergic to something, you may have, of course, heard of or know of the EpiPen. Uh, In the U.S., Milan, the company that makes EpiPens has jacked up prices 400 percent. Why? Well, because apparently because they can. Not sure if that will affect us here. We're going to find out more. Dr. Joseph Greenbaum is with us, Hamilton Allergist, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Department of Medicine, McMaster University, and with us now. Hello, Doctor. How are you today?
3: Fine. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, is this just a US problem or could this become a Canadian problem?
3: I think right now it's just U.S., and you see other examples uh, where prices for inhalers or items like other allergy items are double in the United States what they are in Canada. I think they're just doing what the market can bear. So I hope uh, and uh, I think it probably won't come to Canada.
1: Uh, Why don't you think it would come to Canada?
3: Uh, Because of the same sort of uh, phenomenon you see across the board that uh, it just uh, hasn't happened. I think the United States market can bear higher costs, even though there's some... Uh, Obviously, some uh, handicaps, some people that uh, really can't afford it, uh, but that applies to everything. But in general, I think um, there's a lot more insurance coverage that it does cover. So there are people that are covered for higher costs. They're used to it more in the United States.
1: So so what are those people to do who are, I guess, between the margins here?
3: Well, I can give you some tricks. So uh, the easiest trick is that... um, we know that the expiry date is good for six months, uh, it's good for six months after the expiry date. There's been a study that shows that.
1: I was going to ask you that, yeah. what the validity is of the expiry date. Yeah. So I well, Sorry, go ahead.
3: I, well, the, the medical literature says you can go for six months after, and so uh, <clears throat> it's probably good for a little bit longer after that as well, it just hasn't been studied. Right. Also, when you buy it from the pharmacy, you can ask him, um, you know, what's your longest expiry date that you have in stock, or can you get me another one, or could you try a different pharmacy? So. Oh, good Uh,
1: idea. Just like you're buying groceries or a loaf of bread.
3: Yeah, look at the expiry date and say, no, I'm going to wait tomorrow and get a different one or something. Mm -hmm. Okay, now also, uh, there's this idea that uh, every child has to bring it to school. But I think in Canada, uh, the schools can have one for multiple children. So I think if the school has some in the office, in the old days they used to say every kid has to carry it. Uh, But if it's in the office, i uh, I think you can get away with it, so as long as there's some in the school uh, and you you can borrow someone else's now, I tell you that uh you know I see a lot of people coming out of the emergency departments who are given epipens where they don't really need it, for example, you have a one time event with a drug, your religious this medicine well you're not going to get that again, you know you don't need epipen mm. you know and there's some foods that um are very very uncommon. Uh, i mean for let's take for example the uh, If you're allergic to bananas, I mean, you you, you can be careful enough uh, to really just don't do it, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, there's also this myth that uh, uh, EpiPen only lasts for 15 minutes. So if you don't get to the hospital in time, you need another one. Mm. Well, the the truth is that, um, you know, it depends on the severity of the reaction. So if the reaction is mild enough, it'll just take it away. And if it's severe enough, even two at that minute you know within five minutes may not do it, so it all depends on how severe the reaction is. so I don't know if everybody really needs to carry two of them around at a time, so in the United States, where they're costing five hundred apiece you know um
1: so you only get one hit he- one hit out of each one, that's it
3: you only get one right yeah. so we-, we did have one that uh uh gave you two, but it didn't function well, and we did have a competition uh that uh, that talked to you, but it also didn't function right. well okay but there are also these other devices like there's this adrenoclick uh... that you can get in the states and theoretically the pharmacies may insist on a prescription but these are not, adrenaline is not really a prescription item and i you know i don't It depends on the pharmacy but i think you can walk in and just ask for it uh... it's not going to be a you know over, over the counter it'll be behind the shelf but um it's not truly a prescription so uh, you might just want to drive down to the states. I mean, if it comes that badly, the adrenal click, which we don't have in Canada, is cheaper in the United States. It's available there. Uh, in Europe, they have some different versions that are cheaper. So uh, you may be able to get it over the, you know, by asking the pharmacy just driving across the border.
1: So I understand it's not the drug that's expensive; it's the method of delivery. It's it's the device itself. Yeah, I, I
3: don't think that's. The, that expensive, either, I think it's just a company that raised the price right. you know this has been around like forty years I mean uh you know in the first year that they develop it, it costs money to develop it, but uh, I'm sure they're making the device for five dollars right you know it's, and this it's,
1: is just an idiot proof way to deliver the drug correct right
3: that's right and and you know if you if you can be bothered to be trained, you can get these little vials that uh, just like ten cents each or something you know you know so um uh, you you could carry vials around in a break-proof package and just know how to do it on your own. Hmm. Um, what uh, is it not? Know. Is it not
1: possible to replicate the delivery system? Like, why is that determining
3: I mean, the price? I mean, mean so, somebody else making yeah. same Well, see, so somebody else has made something very similar called Adrenoclick in the United States, but. I don't know why it isn't in Canada. it just maybe hasn't been imported yet um, but uh they may i don't know they may have a patent on it i I have no idea i I don't know um you know the drug rules and the patent rules and things like I don't know why somebody has not made a generic device, yeah. Yeah.
1: So before the EpiPen, it, the only what you would do is you would have just been with a medical personnel, uh, a medical person who would actually just give you a needle, administer the drug themselves.
3: Well, forty years ago, before we had EpiPen, I, I remember when it was invited, invented. Okay, we had this thing called Anakit, where um, it was actually in a very in a syringe that you had to uh mm-hmm. take off the uh rubber thing and put it in you know but uh in in the old days people carried uh, vials around and um it's not um that hard to to learn how to break the vial and to give anybody ask an injection give ask any diabetic you know we have diabetics right. doing yeah. that same kind of thing all the time you know they also have their own pens you know um but they can also do it from uh, vials so uh you know, if if you really want to have it, and you want to have uh, five minutes of training, uh, you could buy the vial and do it. You know, on the cheap. You know, for
1: mind you, if if you're a person who's suffering and who <laughs> carries one of these, do you have time to do that during an attack?
3: Well, you're right. You know, it's uh, uh, you have to have um, the presence of mind. You got to sort of mm. say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and all that kind of thing. So, so it's very handy to have that device, but. Uh, Fortunately, the very the majority of us uh, uh, do have drug plans, but
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, but you know all of this is a question of practice. So if you practice and you know how to do something, uh, when the time comes, you'll know how to do it. Like you talked about the Olympics a minute ago, you know these guys, they're on autopilot. You know they they've trained like crazy, and mm-hmm. when they throw that javelin, they don't even think about it. They just. Yep my body's going to throw it. Just do it. You know? So when it, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, it's the training, the hours of training that takes over, and your mind is blank.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah same sort of thing. So yeah.
3: it, it,
1: uh, is this a short-term problem, Doctor? Is this something that will work itself out as soon as other companies come into the mix? Like there was a competitor to EpiPen, I guess, that they had some recall problems, which has allowed EpiPen to do this in the U.S.
3: Yes. Well, I'm I'm sure that over time there's going to be... People that if the market is that big and if the cost is that big, people will come in and the cost will come down. But I think the company will probably understand that it just can't keep doing this. You know, and um, I think um, uh, th- there were some examples in Canada where we had this company called Valiant that suddenly raised yep. prices of all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I haven't followed their thing, but their stock, you know, went down by ninety percent after a while. But um, you know, I think Myland. Um, uh, We'll find that it just can't do this, you know, and there'll be uh, regulatory, um, you know, government will intervene.
1: Well, it seems to be bad PR. I mean, you yep. know, drug companies that are designed to be helping people are now sort of holding people hostage. I yep. mean, you know, we've we've heard a couple of stories of this uh, of late, of, of this sort of thing happening. Uh, at what point do, you, do, do investors realize this is pretty short-term thinking? Yeah.
3: Yeah, you're you're asking uh, you know financial investor kind of yeah. questions, but from the medical point of view, I think I, I hope I pointed out uh, a little quickly some some of the little tricks that you can use. Yeah. You know, to sort of uh, stretch your dollars, you
1: know. So, uh, that being said, you, you talked about the expiry data, and my kids live this. I mean, we right. have every, it's coming up to September, so we have to get new ones for school. Right. Um, uh, is it the delivery system that it fails, or does the medicine actually deteriorate after the course of a year?
3: Well, not the delivery, for sure, but, <clears throat> it's the, but the medicine. But I think you, you know, if you're having trouble affording it, I think you've got to talk to the principal and say, mm-hmm. if there's other children in the school, you know, uh, then you know, my child doesn't have to come and the teachers will rush down to the... Uh, yeah. You know, they're not holding them on themselves, mostly, and they're not in the classroom, they're in the office. So... <clears throat>
1: So, really, theoretically, would you just not need one of these in every classroom? Even if you want to, you know, if if the office is too far away and you want you, you want to be better protected, even just sure. having one of these yeah, in yeah, every I, classroom I, yeah, is is th- probably better than having one on every kid that's got an yeah, allergy.
3: Yeah, I I think so. Sure, you don't, you know, and uh, maybe we should even talk to the school boards just to just have it around automatically, you know, and not uh, put that responsibility on the parents and just. Hmm. I mean, what if the what if the child doesn't you know forgets to tie up his shoes and forgets to take his EpiPen, you know? So. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, so, is this overkill with making the kid have to wear the EpiPen all the time?
3: Well, there there isn't like one. Uh, like, degree of severity for every yeah. child. Yeah. So some children might be very, very allergic, super allergic, that might really have to have it on, on board and with, on them. But there are a lot of children who are not that allergic, you know, and can wait the minute or two before it, they run down the, the hall mm-hmm. and, you know, get it and, and call an ambulance, you know. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think every every last child needs to carry it on, on themselves.
1: Do you think we will see, uh, you know, just like... Uh when we have the, the the devices for heart attacks, do you think we will just eventually just see these in every classroom as opposed to putting it on the the onus on the parents? i mean if it is the same medication for all allergies, it yeah, is one yeah. size fits all
3: yep yeah, yep yeah, for sure it's one type for sure if you have a if you have an anaphylactic tendency, all you need is adrenaline, you know, so it's the same old thing and the same old dose you know it doesn't vary. I mean, theoretically, you, you should have a judgment, you know, but, but uh, like to say, he, in this particular, the doctor can adju- can do that judgment in the hospital. How much adrenaline do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, but we've all decided that, you know, across the board, there's a certain amount and it's in that, uh, that injector and that's it.
1: So what are the signs that uh, a child is, or someone is in trouble? What, what should people be looking for? What should the person be looking for? I mean, obviously, if you're allergic, you, you would know this, but uh, I guess there's lots of people out there that are still undiagnosed.
3: Right. Well, you know, first you start, to, usually, you start feeling a little nausea in your stomach, and you feel itchy in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then your lips and throat start to swell, and you start to see highs on your body and you start to have trouble uh, breathing, mm-hmm. and you get faint, dizzy, lightheaded, you know, and then you might collapse. So you, you go through this little march of things, mm-hmm. uh, sequence of events, which is slightly different with every person. And you, you usually know um, what the first thing is for you, and so usually suddenly you realize something is happening, and that's when you have to sort of go for attention and get your EpiPen and call an ambulance. Yeah.
1: Uh, how fast can these, these uh, uh, allergies take over your body? How quickly can this happen?
3: You know, so again, it depends on just how allergic you are. So if you're very allergic, it can happen just as you're eating it, you know, yeah. just at that moment, immediately. You know, and if you're not that allergic, you can have delays. Uh, and if, especially if it's masks, masked, you know, in some food, and it's right. only eating a small amount, it can take you half an hour to an hour before it really starts to happen. So, um, usually as soon as you realize that something is happening and if you grab the adrenaline early enough and you get medical attention usually you're pretty safe. Mm -hmm. And
1: obviously if you're to the point where you're using one of these after you've used it you get to a hospital.
3: That's the general rule you know if you have to use this you should go to a hospital for sure because you never know that sometimes there's a second or third wave that Mm -hmm. hits you like you're feeling better a few minutes later but then it starts to come back again. You may not have gotten rid of all of it hmm. i i uh so you you need to go to the hospital and get more medications and usually you need to be treated for a day or two with prednisone to be sure it doesn't come back
1: uh sorry, go ahead.
3: you need some prednisone like cortisone mm-hmm. okay for the next day or two to be sure that it doesn't come back because it can come in waves and you may you may get the first wave, but then if you just sit there and just uh you know feel comfy. Uh, it could hit you again in, an, in a half an hour, an hour, and the second wave or third waves sometimes can be as strong as the first. And, and uh, there are fatalities reported for people who are not um, uh, 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 treated for, for the subsequent effects.
1: Uh, how often does it does someone have a reaction and they have no idea what's going on, they have no idea that they're even allergic? I mean, because normally it takes something to set this off and then perhaps you're, you question it and then go get tested. But what about those that, that have never had the need to get tested?
3: Well, you know, um, for sure it can come at any time. And I've seen people who, let's say, had shellfish one day and were fine and the next day they reacted. Mm -hmm. And why that happens, I know. I've even seen a person where they ate a nut in the morning, and they were fine. And then in the afternoon, they ate it again, and boom, it happened then. So, you know, just because you did it once doesn't mean you're safe. Your past is not a guarantee of your future. Mm -hmm. You know, but, you know, obviously when it starts to happen, you know there's something wrong. And it's only a question of, like, uh, uh, how attuned you are to, like, your health. Uh, If you're a man, you're used to tight, and you think do you all overcome this, and it's really nothing, you know. Mm. And if you're a woman, you probably rush uh, to, for medical attention more often. In fact, there was um, something in the, um, in the press today, uh, in the uh, Canadian Medical Association, about uh, men holding back longer, you know, before they seek medical, medical attention for things. But, you know, each individual has to be aware of his body, and, and uh, when it gets strong enough, you realize there's something wrong, and you know that you have to get uh, medical attention. So um, I think be, you just got to keep an open, uh, you know, mind and decide mm. uh, something is happening, and I need some help here.
1: Are you concerned uh, that EpiPen and things like this will increase in Canada for the same reasons in the United States? Are you confident that uh, that won't be the case here? So
3: far, it hasn't happened, and I don't think it's an issue. But if it if it becomes an issue, uh, we'll deal with it. You know, by getting people to buy the the mm-hmm. vials and by training yeah. them properly and by getting them to stretch the use of it and um and maybe even like i said to go across the border and get some of the, the cheaper models that are there and and i'm surprised that myline is actually doing this because there is a cheaper version around it just doesn't have the um It just hasn't been advertised, and so people aren't as aware that there is a substitute that's less expensive.
1: Hmm. Dr. Joseph Greenbaum has been with us, Hamilton Allergist, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The latest coming out of Turkey and another suicide bomber, uh, even at a wedding. My goodness, at a wedding, it's nothing sacred anymore. Uh, evidently not when it comes to uh, terrorism. Uh, but lots to chat about, not only on this, but the situation in which it happened and the fact that it, it, it's it's becoming increasingly obvious that... Uh, These movements are using kids to deliver their message. They're using kids to deliver their bombs, uh, including a 12-year-old, which was, uh, I guess, apparently the cause of this situation at the wedding. I saw uh, just a fascinating clip on the news over the weekend in which they catch a 12-year-old boy and they're literally holding him up and taking the explosives off him he's wearing a one he's strapped with explosives and then as they're taking him away he's crying he's crying because he's not a hardened criminal he's not a hardened killer yet he's a boy he's a boy and they're making these boys watch beheadings watch whatever in order to radicalize them. At 12, to talk more about all of this, John Thompson is with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and is on the line with us now. Hello, John, how are you today?
4: Not too bad, yourself?
1: Good, thanks for taking the time to join us. Does this change the conversation, John? I'm sure you're gonna say this has been happening for a long time, but does it change the conversation when all of a sudden we realize that, whether it's at a wedding or, or, or one that doesn't go off, that it's, it's like 12-year-old kids that are delivering these?
4: Um, it doesn't for me, because uh, as you just predicted, uh, I've seen all this before, and it, it's been going on for a while.
1: Why is this resonating now?
4: Well, um, I think it's a combination. I mean, uh, children have been used to deliver uh, body bombs before, and have been, and been turned into Shaheed and been conditioned, and weddings have been attacked before, but... Uh, And there's been, of course, you know, the suicide body bombs before, but I think this is the first time all three combined at a wedding.
1: What You know, I saw this clip on the news uh, the other night with them apprehending a boy who uh, had one of these devices strapped to him, and it just seems so ironic that when they're taking him away, they're not taking him away the way that you would think they would a criminal or a typical terrorist. Uh, you know, they picked the boy up and carried him away, and he was crying. It, it just, it just, it just doesn't. It's, something's not right here.
4: It's not, but uh, there, there's a long habit of uh, some of these terrorist groups, especially uh, uh, Islamic ones, of uh, basically working on the very, very young, the, the very. Uh, fragile. Um we, we've also seen it before on the uh, the West Bank and with Hamas and the Gaza Strip. Um they've used um uh, uh, the mentally handicapped to deliver attacks. They've used uh, young uh women who are being divorced, which is a you know a real disgrace in the Arab world. Uh never mind it maybe it was just the the husband's fault, but he's saying, you know, you can avoid all of the the uh, the social pariah status, it goes with being a divorced woman if you, uh, deliver a suicide attack. So we've seen that. Uh, we've seen the handicaps. But also, of course, you know, children are impressionable, especially young teenage boys. Uh, and they can be talked into all sorts of things. And, uh, what really sounds kind of sick and twisted is also that, uh, they work on that whole, uh, 72 virgin thing for uh, for suicide for shaheed for suicide attackers
1: explain and, that explain that to those that may not know
4: well it, it's a part it, it's uh, it's a line in there that uh, somehow or other if you, if you die for islam you will receive 72 virgins in the afterlife who will be your you know you're totally devoted to you and you, and your you know utter and complete uh, sex slaves forever um, and it's been used as a recruiting tool, especially for uh, uh, young teenage boys. And let's face it, you know, when we're 13 and 14, I mean, hmm. yeah, you know, well, you know what that testosterone wash is like, and yeah. you know, that's what you're thinking of about every five seconds. And they're feeding to it.
1: Uh, yeah, what I'm going to say is is I'm sure extremely politically incorrect, and I don't mean it to sound insensitive but i find it ironic when when experts talk exactly what you're talking about and saying that they're recruiting them by saying you know if they do this uh their version of heaven supplies them 72 versions or virgins rather in an afterlife is it any different than extreme christians who are saying when you go to heaven you're going to see all your dead relatives and watch a show with all these old dead musicians i mean is it any different
4: um I think a little, and, and again, I mean, remember in uh, Christianity, a martyr is someone who dies, um, not killing other people, but dies for, for the faith,
0: yeah, yeah.
4: is witness to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Maximilian Kolb, who, you know, on Oct- uh, August 14, 1941, who hmm. substituted for someone else at Auschwitz as a uh, hostage to be executed.
1: Does, when we... when We remember how uh, the picture of that four-year-old boy who drowned during uh, the refugee uh, crossing attempt, how that changed the world's perspective on refugees, certainly did here in Canada, uh, and and the cry was to do more and, and to help more of these people. Uh, we've certainly heard of this story with with 12-year-olds, the boy being carried away after the bomb is is disarmed. The image of the boy after the attack in Syria that was sitting in the ambulance by himself and then would touch his face, and uh, that image seemed to stick out, and they said resonated as much as that boy being brought in uh, on the shore as a refugee. does that change the discussion? Does that change how things happen? Are those tipping points for
4: society? Not really. Um, among other things, I did kind of accidentally uh, write a chronology of the Second World War, and I've, I've had two versions of it published, but I'm working on my third version, but I'm doing this a daily Facebook posting um, as things come up for the 75th anniversary, but also hunting for a suitable photograph to go with it. And of course, you know, in mean, collecting uh, photographs, um, there are some very, very powerful images out there, some of which had incredible resonance with the, uh, the public uh, and have, again, since been forgotten. I mean, things wear off after three yeah. or four weeks.
1: Well, we remember that shot from the Vietnam War of the girl running down the street, the child running down the street with no clothes on. I mean, that was a powerful image in the 60s.
4: Well, you remember the uh, baby in the wrecked uh, railway station in Nanking from 1937 or the, mm. uh, the raped Jewish woman running in total panic, mm. you know, just before she was shot. Mm. You
1: know, uh, so every, yeah, every generation has, has it, I'm sure. Uh, when you have kids that are being raised this way, can they be de-radicalized? It's hard. And, and, it, and, it, it, and how does that, you know, we think we got a problem now. What's the problem going to be like in 10 years from now when these kids are adults?
4: This is probably the, the sickest thing of all. But the, the long and the short of it is, is, and a lot of us have forgotten about ideological conditioning. Uh, but believe me, the ideologues are aware of it. If you catch them young and drill your beliefs into them, um, they may be yours for life. You know, it's one reason why I say both, you know, the Nazis and the Soviet communists banned the Boy Scout movement because they wanted to create their own youth movements and work and work and work. And the most fanatic troops that uh, we faced in the Second World War were the Hitler uh, um in the Waffen-SS, you mm-hmm. know, it was an SS division made up of hit- children who'd been raised in the Hitler Youth Movement.
1: So h- how, did, how did we get out of that? H- how did we stop that youth movement and not this one? There's got to be similarities.
4: Well, the problem is that an ideology has to be defeated. It has to be broken. I mean, the, the Nazis were broken. They were, it was clear they were defeated. Mm. Uh, the Soviet Union fell apart you know, in, in corruption and incompetence. It was clear it was a failure. The jihad movement... Is catching youngsters and working on them as hard as it can, um, and a number of them will never ever give up the movement unless the whole movement itself is broken.
1: How do you do that when it's not a territorial thing? It's 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 woven through the fabric of
4: of the world now. It won't be pretty. They'll be they'll be around for a long time. Well, there is a third way, is that eventually. Um, Sometimes an ideological movement fails to transmit to a new generation, partly because it's been deprived of success. Hmm. So maybe in 30 or 40 years, if the Caliphate has not been rebuilt, if the wonderful New Age uh, that the, uh, the jihadists want has not appeared, there might be a generation of kids that go, out oh, the hell with you," and they yeah. then they turn to something else.
1: How will they know though? Because uh, you know, you got to be dead to enjoy your
4: seventy-two virgins. That's a good sales pitch. Um, and again, they've been convincing, but this is this is also nothing new. If you remember the traditional stories about the uh, uh, the original order of the assassins or the Hashashin, you know, in thirteenth uh, century Iran. Uh, that they would take some a young member of the Order, uh, dope him, and he would wake up in a, a garden surrounded by beautiful, complacent women uh, with everything that was forbidden to him, including wine. And they mm. did give him his uh, taste of heaven, mm. and then send them on his mission, telling him that this is all yours forever if you uh, get through and stab whatever enemy they were after. And, uh, and they were feared. That's where the word assassin comes from.
1: Technology is helping to spread this word. Can't technology debunk it?
4: Yes, but um, the problem is counter-propaganda, especially on the Internet, is very difficult, and you also have to know what you're doing. The, the other problem, I think, is that most countries are not really willing to engage in sort of the... Uh, uh, the, the counter ra- some of the, the blunt Im- imagery that might be needed for counter radicalization um, I've often thought it would be possible you know the uh, in the Second Intifada when the suicide bombers began and were coming out of the West Bank and getting into Israel um, uh, Palestinian TV was showing all these wonderful sort of ads and, and and features that show how wonderful the afterlife was if you were a Shaheed and um, including the the whole, you know, all the references to uh, the wonderful women you would get forever. Um, I always thought the Israelis should have shown, you know, broke in and shown counter images of what a Shahid looks like after his body bomb goes off. Hmm. hmm. Uh,
1: you know, after Hitler's reign, the world came together. This was never going to happen again. Uh, but how has it?
4: Larks, I think, um, because we weren't really all that assertive, um, and again, there there are always going to be ideologues. They'll they'll be exist they'll exist in every population, and they'll push. Yeah. Um, and thanks to Hitler and thanks to Lenin and Stalin, the techniques for conditioning people are well understood. Um, so actually, there's more. Violent virulent movements out there than ever before, uh, and they follow they don 't have to uh, uh, they might <clears throat> adopt the techniques of Nazism or of marxism Leninism, uh, but they don 't believe in it they 're just using the uh, the guidebook as a how to manual and inserting their own beliefs.
1: Will we solve this issue before it divides us
4: Well most of us uh, again are Reasonable. Most of us, and this includes, of course, you know, most Muslims around the world, want to live peaceful, quiet lives. We don't like ideologues. They frighten us and they scare us. The the point is, uh, and this is, uh, I guess, the the daily fight we all have to face is that uh, we have to refuse to be frightened. We have to stand up to them and diminish them as they come along, and basically say, "Look, you're an idiot." You know, if someone starts to get to recruited, we have to refuse to be frightened. We should not be walking off across the street and trying to get out of the way of, say, of the brown shirts like Germans did in the 1930s, unless the brown shirts take over. You've got to confront them in every way you can in your own private life by refusing to be frightened and being refusing to be stampeded.
1: Uh, You know, we've often heard that, uh, you know, we can't be quick to judge these people as unsophisticated, as primitive, as stupid, because simply the techniques that that they have used uh, in order to recruit uh, speak for themselves, I guess. That being said, the way in which they suck people in does sound incredibly primitive. And and it and it almost sounds surprising in this day and age. And of course, I'm looking at this from a Western perspective, that you can pull the wool over people's eyes this way on such a mass form.
4: Well, you you look very carefully. You, you find the vulnerable. You you find the foolish. You find the the malcontent. You tell them what they think you want to hear, and mm. that works in any society. Mm. You know, we still generate. Uh, in fact, actually, let's face it. We're also getting about uh, 10 to 15 percent of the that you had us in the Western world are people who were converts. So even a, a message like this, or the, the message that some of our converts, it still works regardless of the education level.
1: Yeah, that's a valid point, too. Uh, John Thompson is with a security consultant, strategic intelligence group. Suicide bomber killed 51 uh, in Turkey over the weekend. uh, A Kurdish wedding uh, and 12-year-old soldiers delivering these bombs. John, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show,
0: weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.